When I was in high school, that's when I started uh, learning to play guitar, and some of you think I still haven't learned to play guitar, um, but I, I got a beginner guitar, and um, I had no idea, though, how to even learn to play a guitar, so I, I, my parents got me a book, you know, how to play guitar, um, and it was useless. I was so lost, and I didn't read music, and I didn't, and it was like classical guitar, which I, I didn't know there were different styles of guitar, and so I, I struggled along and then just pretty much gave it up, and then we had, I had just become a Christian for my sophomore year of high school, and there was a traveling youth uh, musical that came through our town. They were perf- did a performance or whatever at our church, and so families in the church opened their homes to house the choir and all that, but we ended up housing the band members for this um, little youth musical, and uh, so a few of the members stayed at our house, and we stayed up really late into the night, which for me at that time was probably like 9 or 10 p.m. Uh, I've never been a night person, but it seemed late. And so we stayed up and they were showing me guitar chords and teaching me how to play guitar and, 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 um, and one of the first songs that they taught me, there's that first night, I mean, I was so excited because by the next morning I could play songs with these few chords that they taught me, but it was the song, Humble Thyself. And some of you know that little simple chorus, it's very simple song, three easy chords, E minor, C and D, and it has a neat, uh, sound in this minor key, and it's usually sung in a round, kind of antiphonally as you sing to one another. And I tell you what, let's just go ahead and sing it together. Can we do that? And I'm going to show you, I can still play guitar. Yeah. <laughs> At least this simple song. And now I reckon my illustration is going to get totally botched if I mess this up. Um, but this is, do you know, how many know the song? A little simple course. Okay, so we'll sing it. Just this side, you'll, you'll be the first group. This side will be the second group. If you're in the middle, just figure it out. Alright? Uh, you can go either direction. Can we get guitar? Am I, do I need to push some button or something? Ah, well, you can hear it. All right, there we go. All right, so you ready over here? If you don't know it, just gather along here. It's just going to repeat. So we're going to sing one thing, sing, sing the other. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. We'll do that twice. It'll be, and he, and he will lift, will lift. And then we sing together. You up higher and higher. And he, and he will lift, will lift you up. All right, you ready? Got it? Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. And He will lift you up higher and higher. And He will lift you up. That's good. Try one more time. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. And He will lift you up higher and higher. And He will lift you up. And He, and He will lift you up. Higher and higher, and He will lift you up. All right, so simple song, isn't it? All right, even if you didn't know it, you know it now. And I uh, hope that it's in your mind and heart as we, as we go through the day today. Simple song to play on a guitar. Simple song to sing. 
But that is a hard, hard thing to do. Um, I could learn the chords to that song and the words to that song as a new believer, but I have spent the last uh, 20 years of my life trying to even begin to scratch the surface of what it means to humble myself before the Lord. We've covered three and a half centuries since we began our study of kings. And we haven't even seen this happen once yet. We've seen even the best of the kings of Israel like Uzziah and Hezekiah still struggle with pride before the Lord. And, and certainly all of the other idol-worshipping kings of Judah, they acted with this foolish arrogance before, before God. Yet in these chapters that we're looking at this morning, for the very first time, we find a king who in chapter 22, verse 19 says, he humbled himself before the Lord. And as we'll see, God lifts him up. His name is Josiah. Josiah. And we've, we've read and referenced a passage from Deuteronomy many times through our study of kings. Deuteronomy chapter 17, it's verses 14 to 20. This is, these were God's instructions to Israel concerning when they, when they have a king, this is what he's to be like. And we've gone back to there many times and compared God's standard with the kings that we've been, we've been seeing in the book of Kings. And among other things that that Deuteronomy says there, verse 20 says, that his heart should not be lifted up above his brothers. He should be humble. And he also, verse 20 says, must not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left. And so taking that, and you look in the description of Josiah in 2 Kings 22, verse 2, and the text says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And at the end of Josiah's story. Turn over to chapter 3 verse 25. Alright this is driving me crazy. I'm sorry. I'm getting a little obsessed about this. But I feel like I'm preaching to one side of you. So I'm going to center myself here. Speaking of right and left. Um, <laughs> At the end of Josiah's story, in 2 Kings 23, 25, the writer says this, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses, nor did any king like him arise after him. And so he takes the throne during the spiritually darkest period in Judah's history. Uh, and, and as he humbles himself before the Lord, again, God lifts him up and God uses him to lead this nation that's just floundering in, in idolatry and pagan uh, just darkness. And he leads the nation into this incredible time of spiritual renewal and reformation. It's an amazing story that we're going to see today. I just one application, and we've mentioned this a few times, but I know we did with Hezekiah. It's one of the things that this teaches us is that God has this uncanny ability to use the most unlikely people, like the grandson of Manasseh, the most notorious 
idol-worshipping king of Judah. And he uses his grandson, and, his, and he's a son of a pagan idolater, Amon. And he uses him in this unlikely time to advance God's cause in the world. And, and so you look at yourself and you think, who am I? And, 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 and what about these times? And God is able. He's able to do great things as we avail ourselves to him. All right, so we'll, we'll, we may come back to that. But when the son of Ammon the idolater here, when he took the throne, the spiritual state of Judah, as I said, is at this low ebb. It's awful. And, and, and yet in a short time, God's spirit moves and, and the whole nation is radically reshaped and is, is revived, is renewed. And that's, that's a, it's a beautiful story here. And so the big idea for this morning, and this is if we could just put our arms around the whole two chapters here, and this is what we'll see, is that when God's people respond properly to God's word, God's spirit moves in renewing power. And it's, we're going to see it in the case of Judah, and we could say the same thing in our own day. Well, this is the first, first way we see that, that, that idea unfold in the text. And it's in verses 1 to 7. And I'll just go ahead and state the point. The spiritual renewal begins with a dissatisfaction with the status quo. A dissatisfaction with the status quo. So Josiah comes to the throne at the tender age of 8. How many, anybody here, 8? Any 8-year-olds in the house today? All right, nobody's willing to raise their hand. All right. Who is that, Raylan? I can't. Not, oh, Adeline, I'm sorry. I didn't even have the right family. <laughs> Eyes are getting bad. Adeline. All right, so imagine Adeline as being the queen of uh, this nation or president of the United States. Well, this is Josiah at the age of eight. I'm not saying that would be a scary thing or anything, Adeline. Don't take offense at that. But, but at the age of eight, Josiah becomes king. And he's placed there by the people who rejected and executed his father's assassins. So this is a tumultuous time as they install him as king over Israel. He reigns for 31 years, the text says. And, and obviously as a boy of eight, he's, he's, in, he's king in name only. There's someone else that's kind of acting as his regent. And at some point, he really begins to really reign as king. And we're not told... You know, we've been told this in other cases that there was a priest or somebody who influenced the, the more righteous kings and, and had a, a significant influence on them. And we're not told that in this case, who, who was involved in his life to just push him to the Lord and, and assuming there was somebody. But the right of, right of Chronicles says that in the eighth, this is in second Chronicles 34, three, if you just want to write that reference down. But he says in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. So this choice at the age of 16, it, it, it shapes the rest of his life. And again, I, young people, choices you make right now are, are setting the course for the rest of your life, setting the trajectory for your entire lives, for good or bad. And, and how early can you begin seeking God? Well... While you're yet a boy or yet a girl, seek God now. Pursue Him. And get, want, long to know Him. Children, youth, begin seeking the Lord now. I, I know many of your friends and many of your classmates and, and, and other youth are, 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 are just pursuing the popular idols of our culture. I say, don't, don't follow them in that. 
Your classmates may not be seeking God, but you seek God. You take Josiah's lead here. Even at a young age, seek the Lord. And you'll be amazed at how God can use your life to, 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 to serve and to bless the lives of those who right now are rejecting him. And that's what we'll find in Josiah's case. So according to 2 Chronicles 34, he begins seeking God at 16. At age 20, he begins to undo the paganism that his father had worked so hard to put in place in his grandfather. And so that's at age 20. Then we get back into where where the writer of Kings picks it up in verse 3. It's in the 18th year of his reign. So he's 26 years old now that he has this real defining moment of his reign. And he, he becomes disturbed by the sad state of the Lord's temple. It just weighs on him. And so his dad and his granddad, they showed no respect for the temple of the Lord. They, they neglected it. They abused it. They, they ravaged it. But Josiah feels this weight and this conviction over the current state of the temple and of God's worship. And, and, and this conviction then drives everything else that follows in the narrative here. And so there's no, what we don't find is this, this, there's no indication of some, you know, master plan, some st- strategic plan. And this is the first step in this big plan that Josiah has to restore the Lord's worship in, in Judah. That's not it. He hasn't, he hasn't orchestrated this and he's starting to execute it. That's not what we find. He's simply acting on what he can plainly see as wrong. And again, I think there's application for us. It's not, it's not bad to plan. We're going to see Josiah making plans and, and, and doing that. We, we saw it when we studied Nehemiah a few years ago and what a masterful planner he was and how God blessed that. And we see it in the early church. We see it. I mean, we, we're, we're working on that even as a church with that Vision 2020 process that we're right in the middle of right now. And we're looking and trying to discern what the, the key issues are for us as a church. There's nothing wrong with strategic planning and, and, and long-range planning and that kind of thing. But, but what is wrong is waiting and doing nothing until all of the plans are set and all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted. And, and, and you, can, you can die by planning. And, and then what we find here is, is Josiah's this great example. He just, he's seeking God with the little awareness and knowledge of what God expects of him even. Because he doesn't, as we'll see, he doesn't even have God's word. And yet he's seeking the Lord. And, and he just, led by God's Spirit, walking in faith, is obedient to the Lord. And what, and, and what he knows in response to the Spirit's conviction. And he just, he just does the next thing. He's just burdened and he, he responds. I just say, brothers and sisters, even in light of our, our process of, you know, long range planning, don't wait. This is, this is what's going to come out of it. This is the exhortation. It'll be, we, we need to be, we need to be, again, as we're talking about this summer, leveraging every bit of our lives to make disciples right where we are. Make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's why we're left on earth. And so you don't have to wait for some, presentation to begin that you start today and and praying and working to that end opening your eyes and listening to people around you and engaging with people and your neighbors and co-workers and and friends and teammates and this is this is it don't wait around so he he has this burden and he acts so he commissions his secretary Shiphan 
he commissions him to direct Hilkiah the high priest to initiate this program of, of repair and restoration of the temple. And so it's been almost 200 years since the repairs have been made on the temple. If you remember Joash, uh, again, two centuries earlier that we looked at in Kings. And so the temple is no doubt in sad, sad shape. Again, it's been neglected, it's just aging, it's been abused, and so it's in pitiful shape. And so the repairs that are required are very extensive. In verse 6, there's carpenters, there's builders, there's masons that are needed, they need timber, they need cord stone. Lots of major work has to be done on the temple. And so he develops a system for collecting money, paying workers, and we find all of that recorded for us. But this is what I want you to see. What set all of this in motion? What was it? This is spirit-produced dissatisfaction in his heart. He, he, he was already seeking the Lord again as best he could without God's law, and he sees the temple in disrepair, and he just simply starts trying to do something about it. And, and it's this do-the-next-thing kind of obedience that, that is needed. And so, are you discontent with the spiritual status quo? In your own life, in this church, in our community, in our nation. Is that true of you? We can be discontent with a lot of things, with money and possessions and health and appearance and um, relationships and popularity and status. And the list goes on and on of things we may be discontent with. But are we yet perfectly content with spiritual apathy residing in our hearts? Just existing. We, we whine about not having the kind of houses that other people have. And yet we don't weep before God for the fact that others don't have and know the salvation that we have. We, we, we can complain about our physical appearance. And yet we don't cry out to God for our spiritual growth. Or change me. We grumble about our culture and the decline in our culture, and yet we don't humble ourselves before God and beg Him to revive His church. See, there's there's this right discontent that drives what we find everything else in this in this account, and it need, we need to see it in our own lives too. Second way we see this big idea emerge is this: is that spiritual renewal. Involves seeing ourselves in light of God's word and responding appropriately. Responding appropriately. So in the course of the temple work day, and it was many more days, not a day, but uh, they're, they're, they're going through, they're cleaning the temple up. This incredible thing happens. Look at me, verse 8. Verse 8, And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now, the book of the law was probably the book of Deuteronomy, though it may be the entire Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. But he he finds the book of the law. Now, it's hard to even conceive of how such an important scroll could be lost. And we are talking about a scroll. It's not a bound book like we have, but a scroll. But, But then we think, who has occupied the throne of Judah for the last half a century? It's been Manasseh and then his son Amon for just a couple of years. And so probably Manasseh either had it removed because he had no regard for the Lord, had no place for God's word and his reign. 
And so he had it removed from the place that it had beside the ark of the Lord. Or the priests hid it because they didn't want him to destroy it. And so it's probably one of those cases. And, and then it may be just simply that it was just this process. It was it was ignored at first and it was neglected. And then finally it's it's lost. It's just covered in dust behind other trappings in the temple. And But God's word is lost in the house of the Lord. That's a, quite a statement, isn't it? And no one seems to notice or even care. Uh, just thinking in, in, in terms of us, what, what great privilege we have to, to have this unparalleled access to the scriptures that we enjoy here. And it's so easy for us to take that for granted. Um, we have Bibles everywhere. And, and they can be purchased for next to nothing. And we can download an app, you know, while we're sitting here on our, on our smartphones. And we have hundreds of English versions of the Bible. But, but don't forget the incredible sacrifices and God's grace that was bestowed to, 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 to see that we have the Bible in our own language and, and have this accessibility. It's a privilege that most throughout the centuries have not known, and it's a privilege that many today don't know. Many people groups around the world. And we should pray for those parts of the world that are cut off from access to the scriptures where it's limited or even denied. And maybe because the, the Bible isn't translated into their language, and maybe it's because the government won't allow it um, in, in, their, in their nation. But we, and we should support the works of the work of Bible translators who are laying, laboring hard to see the scriptures put in the languages of all people groups. That's an important work. But, but, but it's, again, it's so easy for us to take that for granted. But what's incredible here is that it's possible to lose the word of God. You have it and you lose it in the house of the Lord. In in really just a short period of time, the word goes from being central to the very, uh, the, the very being of the nation of Judah during the reign of Hezekiah, and then just in a few decades, it's gone. Nobody knows where it is, even a physical copy of it. I know it's hard for us to conceive of losing the word when we have so many print and digital copies, and I don't think we would lose it like this, but I, I will... I was thinking, is there a way that we can lose the word? I mean, we've seen it in nations. You see it in Western Europe and to a large extent. Um, it can be lost. Let me just give you a few possibilities. It can be lost by denying the Bible's inspiration, that it's God-breathed word of, that it's his, his word, that by denying the Bible's inerrancy, by denying its sufficiency in our lives. It can be lost when it's seen as merely a it's kind of a man-made record of religious strivings after God rather than God's divine revelation to us. This is what we see in many liberal churches in our own nation. But it can be lost in conservative Bible churches too. When, when, we, when our experiences or our favorite teachers or authors, when they begin to to carry more authority in our lives than, than the Bible itself. It can be lost when we pay lip service to it, when we have a high view of the Scriptures, and yet we don't really work to understand it and to apply it in our lives. That's, that's the early stages. We can just kind of ignore it, neglect it, and eventually it's lost. 
But Hilkiah finds the book of the law, and when he when he does, he passes it along to Shaphan. And verse 8 says that he read it. What a, an experience that must have been. And then he reports back to the king. And unbelievably, he first reports to the king about the progress that's being made on the repairs of the temple. And then he tells Josiah about this providential discovery. And it's interestingly, I think it's interesting how casually he communicates this to, to Josiah. Verse 10, Hilkiah, the high priest, or the priest, has given me a book. A book? What? Uh, that's like the biggest understatement of the century. Josiah has never seen, has never heard a copy of the word of God in his entire life. And so verse 10, and Shaphan read it before the king. Now, if it's the book of Deuteronomy, it would probably take a couple hours to read the entire book. If it was the entire first five books of the Old Testament, we're talking the better part of a day to read the, the, the law in its entirety. And so this is what's done, though. And God's, God's word, it penetrates deeply and immediately into the heart of Josiah. So verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. You know, God's word, it has this innate it has the innate power of God Himself. It does. And this is, it's, it's Hebrews 4.12. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And it's because God's Word has this, this innate power that, that Paul urges Timothy and one of the pastors of the Ephesian church, he urges him, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to teaching and to exhortation, First Timothy 4.13. He doesn't just say, don't forget to do this. No, he says, devote yourself to it. We've got to hear from the Lord. And, 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 and listen, church, the public reading of Scripture, what my brother Edgar Diller just did a moment ago, that is not a throwaway in the service. It's not time to get situated for the sermon. No, you devote yourself. You give your full attention whenever God's Word is read. And God can do with a public Scripture reading like that. That can be the spark that God uses to set the church on fire in revival. And so don't, don't, not just don't neglect it, but devote yourself to it, church. Give attention to the scriptures. And so as, so we see Josiah's first response. It's conviction. Tearing his clothes. It's a sign of grief. And what he's grieving over is the, he recognizes the fact that the nation of Judah has violated the, 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 the requirements of God's covenant and therefore has come under his judgment. Just think of all those blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy. That seems to be the essence of, of what Josiah is feeling, the weight of this. And so he tears his clothes. And he, and he has this weight of conviction. And because God's word is brand new to him, he has no experience hearing or reading or uh, the, the word before. So he, he wants his understanding of what's been read to him. He wants it confirmed. And so he, he sends for a prophet to confirm his interpretation and to confirm this word from God. And so he commissions this team of trusted officials with weird names in verse 12. And thank you, brother, for reading that. And 
we're, we're, we're a few more weeks of, or one more week of kings, and we'll kind of be back to names we can recognize. But their orders are to go, verse 13, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. And so he's convinced, and we see he's convinced that what he's heard in the book of the law is bad news for the nation. There's no rationalization, there's no excuse making at all in his evaluation. He's completely overwhelmed with just this realization of the guilt of Judah before the Lord. Verse 13, look at it. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. It was reference to the sins of his fathers. It's not blame shifting. It's, it's their fault. That's not really it. He, what, this, what this is, is this recognition of our corporate responsibility in our sin before God. We deserve what is ours because of our sin. It's generational sin. Now, I want to make an application to us, and I, and I am keenly aware, and we always need to be mindful of this, that there's not a one-to-one application between God's nation of Judah here and the church today, but I think there is, I think this is instructive to us because we have our generational sins too, and they should grieve us. We should tear our clothes in a sense before them. We, we don't easily and often recognize them because they're so woven into the very fabric of our lives and of the church over decades and over centuries. And some have become so deeply ingrained and and the consequences of them continue on to this day. Now, I've, I've thought of several examples of this. Uh, and I'm just going to skip one that I was planning to work out of legalism. But I, I want to go to one, and that's racism. We know it's wrong to treat another person differently because of their race or ethnicity. And whether or not we've actively participated in racism or not, it is a part of who we are. It's a part of our culture. And I'm talking about the church, folks. Let's just, let's just put our cards on the table here for just a moment. And, and yes, many Christians participated in and had a lot to do with the repealing of slavery and some parts of the civil rights movement. But we, Christians, also have a terrible legacy of defending and upholding racism and even twisting the scriptures to defend it. That's part of our heritage. Now, all of us here, I'm sure, this morning, reject racism. I hope so. And we don't believe in it. We don't believe that God holds one ethnic group higher than another. We don't believe that we should separate across ethnic or racial lines. So it would be easy for us to say something like, well, racism is not our problem anymore. We've, we've moved on past that. And to that I would say, go to the grocery store and what do you see? You see all ethnicities mixed together. You go... To the park, and what do you see? You see all ethnicities mixed together. Go to a school, go to a restaurant, go to a workplace. It's generally what you see. And then you go to church, and what do you see? 
Nine out of, more than nine out of ten churches in the United States are overwhelmingly um, one race or, or the other, or another. And I, I'm not saying that people who go to churches that are overwhelmingly one race are all racists. That's not my point. Actively promoting racism. But, but we need to take ownership of this legacy of, of prejudice and racism. That's a part of the church. We can't simply say, I'm not a racist, it's not my problem. It's not going to work. Now, I, that's all I can say for now. I, I feel a sermon just brewing, and so we'll come back to this at a later date, and where do we go from there? But I, I would just say, that I, think it's, I think it's right for us to feel the weight of our past. Not, not that we have to pay for our past, that's not it. But I, I think there is a right sense of, God, forgive us. Forgive us. And then we labor hard to do what we can to bring back together and obey the Lord. So this delegation goes and speaks with hold of the prophetess. Verse 14, she lives in Jerusalem now. She's one of five prophetesses named in the Old Testament. And apparently she has... Uh, really uh, is, is highly respected because Jeremiah, Zephaniah, they're both active as prophets during this time, but he goes to this Holda that's living there and, and that we know nothing more about her than what we read in this text right here. So we, we, we can't piece together her, her bio, but she has this double message for Josiah after this delegation is sent to her. And the first thing she does is that she confirms Josiah's worst fears. In verse 16, she says, God will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. It's going to happen. And then he, the Lord catalogs all of Judah's sins. They have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods. Verse 17, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. The core of their offense is what? It's violation of the first and second commandments. No other gods before me. No graven images. And the awful truth is stated in verse 17, the end of it, that my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. Not even the godliness of Josiah, no amount of reform is going to be able to hold back this outpouring of divine judgment. That's not all the prophet has to say. She has a message for Josiah himself in verse 19, because though your heart was penitent, And you humbled yourself before the Lord and have torn your clothes and have wept before me. I have also heard you, declares the Lord. And this is one of the great principles that we see throughout Scripture. Is that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. As the Lord said through Isaiah, the one that this is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is what we see in Josiah's response. This is a response that we should all have before the Lord in this word. And so he says, because your heart is penitent, or some translations say responsive or tender. It's, it's tender. The writer of Chronicles uses the word tender to describe this as well. Second Chronicles 34, 27. I just say, brothers and sisters, don't respond to the word with hardness of heart, but with Tenderness of heart. 
We need soft-hearted responses to the word of God. We, we put ourselves under the scrutiny of the word and say, whatever you say, Lord, I'll do it. I'll conform. I give myself to you. We, 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 as James says, we need to receive with meekness the implanted word that is able to save your souls. And so he so he humbles himself before the Lord, and and the prophet is the Lord says to the prophetess, I, I've seen your humble heart, and then she gives the second part of her instruction. Therefore, although judgment can't be avoided, it will be delayed. And so he's told that this disaster it's not going to happen in his time, but it's going to happen. Now, how does Josiah receive that word? Is he just full of selfish gratitude? Oh, thank! I don't have to. I don't have to endure that. Or is he just resigned to this kind of fatalistic news? Now, what does he do? He he gathers together, verse 1 of chapter 23, he gathers together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and he, and he engages in the solemn covenant ceremony. And having gathered all the men, verse 2, of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. So for the first time in 65 years, for the first time in most of these people's lives, they hear the word of God read. What a moment. And, 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 and Josiah, though, he's not simply, he's not content to simply read the law. Verse 3, the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul. To perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. So he begins with this personal commitment to the Lord. And the people follow along. What a, what a moment again. No other king has led a movement like this. And so spiritual renewal then. This is the second point. Involves seeing ourselves in light of God's word. And responding appropriately. That's that last part is key. It's not enough to just know the Bible. It's not enough to just hear the Bible and to be professional sermon listeners. It's not enough to have a degree in Bible from a Christian college. It's not enough to go through the Bible Institute. There are plenty of religious leaders in Jesus day who knew the scriptures well. They were experts in the law and yet they did not set them see themselves in light of it and respond appropriately as we're seeing here in Josiah's case. We need more than academic knowledge to fill our heads. We need, we need, as Josiah demonstrates, hearts that are tender, tender, penitent before God's word. Letting God scrutinize us, our words, our behaviors, our attitudes, our desires, our ambitions, our relationships, everything about us, Lord. It's, it's all laid bare before you. And, and then we need to respond with appropriate obedience. You know, as we've gone through this survey process all, over and over again, this is a Bible teaching church. This is a Bible teaching church. This is a Bible teaching church. And I say, that's great. Man, I thank God for that legacy here. But I confess it frightens me to think that that might become a source or may already be a source of spiritual pride for some of us. We, we are content of just... Pat ourselves on our back and be content with that. And that is one step in the wrong direction if, we, if that becomes an, a, a, a foothold for the enemy. 
to grow pride in us. And more than just being a Bible teaching church, we need to be a church that humbles ourselves before God and His Word and, 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 and seeks to be renewed by God's Spirit so that we're more aligned with what He wants from us. That's what we need. And we need the knowledge. We need to be taught. But we need, we need to, to see ourselves in light of it and, and respond appropriately. Third way we see this idea come out is in verses 4 to 23 of chapter 23. And I'm going to summarize this. But it's this. is that spiritual renewal always leads to practical reformation. It's not just this emotional experience, this covenant ceremony, and we feel good about uh, our commitments and our resolve. No, it it shows up in action, how we live. And so from verses 4 to 23, we see this catalog of all of the practical reforms that are initiated by Josiah. And they touch on every part of the nation, though the temple is the real focal point. And so one commentator calls this section a 12-step demonastification program. Um, And that's what it is. He's undoing everything that his grandfather put in place. And even those before his grandfather. He goes beyond that. So verse 4, he removes the pagan vessels from the temple. Verse 5, he deposes the pagan clergy. Verse 6, he just pulverizes the Asherah. Verse 7, he wrecks the male prostitutes' temple apartments. Yes, they had those in the temple. Verse 8 through 9, he defiles Judah's high places and deposes their priests. Verse 10, he desecrates Tophet, which was a place of child sacrifice. Verse 11, he removes and destroys all of the sun worship paraphernalia. Verse 12, he smashes the royal idol altars. In verse 13, he, he eliminates Solomon's folly, those high places that Solomon built for the gods of his pagan wives. Verse 14, he destroys the props of fertility worship. Verses 15 and 16, he pulls down and defiles the Jeroboam's Bethel worship center. So he's moving even beyond Judah to the Israel to the north, and he purges throughout the northern cities, verses 19 and 20. It's comprehensive, thorough reform in the nation. And so he's, and he not only removes the idols negatively, but there's a positive side to his obedience that he, he also calls the nation back to covenant responsibility. In verse 21, he calls the people to keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. Now, to some extent, the Passover has been kept throughout the centuries, but it wasn't kept in accordance with the requirements of the law, namely the central focus on the temple. And so this is why we read verse 22, not since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah had the Passover been kept. And so this is the really the crowning act of this reformation. It's this submission to the word of God. We want to do it your way, God. And I would just say, again, it's one thing to hear the word. It's another. It's one thing to believe and understand God's word. It's another thing to obey it. I mean, just think of in the household. If you tell your kids to do their chores, that's one thing. But it's another thing for them to actually do their chores. <laughs> you know, we don't explain chores so they can get together in small groups and discuss what chores are about and how they should be done and parse the instructions that we give them and find the Greek words for unloading the dishwasher and taking out the trash and 
What does all that mean? No, I, we give instructions and we expect our children to be doers of the word and not hearers only, as James says. I realize I'm taking that out of context. But those, but those, that's our response to God. That's to be it. That's, that's, those are words and James are important. James says that those who are just hearing the word, they're deceiving themselves. It's deception. To be a hearer, to be a professional sermon listener, to not be a doer of the word. It's possible to deceive yourself into thinking that taking in information is enough and not letting obedience and transformation of life follow. And this kind of obedience that's demonstrated here, it hurts. There's pain involved. You don't smash idols and do so without pain. This is, this is rip, ripping serious bandages off of, of you. And it hurts at first. But it's for our good. This is, requires sacrifice. This radical realignment of our priorities. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Last thing, and we're done. It's this. is that spiritual renewal doesn't mean that all the consequences of past sin are rendered null and void. It's, it's not what it means. Um, this year, 622 B.C., has been a glorious year for the nation of Judah. I mean, just what, what an account to read. This is true, folks. It's not religious fiction. What a remarkable thing that we just read and saw in these chapters. And yet, Josiah, he's not going to let it just become this kind of passing event. Like, wow, that was neat. We should do that some other time. Put that on the calendar. That was a great event. No, he continues to walk faithfully before the Lord. He deals with other abuses. And in verse 24, he put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem. These are the more private spiritual abuses, the the household idols. And and these were generally out of the public eye. But he says, that's not enough just to deal with the big obvious things. We got to root this out of all parts of our of our existence as a nation. And again, the writer celebrates the special character of Josiah, verse 25. For him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. You see this comprehensiveness his love for God, his obedience to the Lord, nor did any like him arise after him. And again, although he's a great reformer, though, judgment's coming. It's coming. Reform came too late. It's not Josiah's fault. But the sins of the nation, they reach their pinnacle and during the reign of Manasseh, and it demands this divine response. One writer said, it will only be in the furnace of Babylon that idolatry will be burned out of Judah's soul. And, and so his, and Josiah's reforms, they don't even last very long after he dies and passes off the scene. I mean, you, you read Jeremiah and Ezekiel and you see the extent to which the people just plunged back into idolatry after he passes away. And you hear God's verdict, verse 26. The Lord did not turn away from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. 
And so despite all of the reforms, despite all of Josiah's efforts, the wrath of God continues to burn against the nation because of Manasseh's sin. He knew, Josiah knew the reforms wouldn't turn away the Lord's anger. It would only delay them. But, but that, that, is, that is, and yet what? He obeyed anyway. He obeyed anyway. I love that example. That one, Again, one commentator said, Obedience without incentives is likely genuine. That's, that's good. Josiah obeyed out of love for the Lord, not for what obedience might bring him. Uh, in the book of Job, it opens with that question, you remember? This is, this is, and, and it's a question that Josiah answers rightly, and we need to too. And Satan asks the Lord, does Job fear God for no reason? What he's saying is, will Job serve God even if, even if he gets nothing out of it? And why do we obey? Is it for what we can get out of this life? I know we love to jump on the prosperity preachers and theologians. And, and we reject that as a, theoretically. But some of us live like that very practically. We think that we, by our efforts and, and by our strivings, can somehow get God in, uh, to, to do what our bidding. We obey for what we can get from Him and and when when Jesus said, "If you love me, you'll keep my commandments." It's love motivated obedience. That's why we obey Jesus. We love Him. Period. Well, up to this point, we there there really has been the writer hasn't in this in the account of Josiah. He's really not talked about anything that's happening outside of Judah. He's not talked about Assyria. He's not talked about. Babylon or Egypt or any of the other external affairs. He's just focused on what's happening in the nation. But at the end of the account, we find that the window is open to see what's going on out there. And in 609 B.C., we find Josiah brought to an early death at the age of 39 um, by these outside forces. And um, the Assyrian Empire is, is coming unraveled and... So in the west you have Egypt that's now the big power. In the east you have Babylon, which is this growing superpower. And so the, uh, Egypt kind of forges this alliance with what remains of Assyria to fight against Babylon, who's the biggest threat in the, in the land now. And so this is happening. And so the Assyrian king appeals to the pharaoh of Egypt. And, he, and, and, and so the pharaoh of Egypt goes and he goes up to the king of Assyria by the river Euphrates in northern uh, Syria, and so as he's passing up that direction, he's going through Palestine. Josiah goes, marches out to meet uh, this Pharaoh in battle, and he's way outmanned. And we're not told his reasons for doing this, but while he's out there, Necho, the Pharaoh, killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. Verse twenty-nine. And then the people take his youngest son Jehoahaz, anoint him as king. Verse thirty. And so with the death of Josiah. This disintegration of Judah under God's wrath and under Babylon, Babylon's might, it just, it just, it's going to come with dizzying speed. I mean, we just have two chapters left and this whole thing is going to come crashing down next week. It's, it's, it's just lightning speed. Well, this is what we have seen throughout Kings and this is what we see here. I know we're talking a lot about Josiah and he's a tremendous example for us, but God is the main actor in this section too. What, what this is really showing is the unstoppability of God. 
His spirit, his word, his grace, his justice, his promises, his unrelenting faithfulness to his covenant. He's not going to fail. And again, we learn much from Josiah in his example here. But, but, but what we really need to be pointed to is God's faithfulness. And what we find is that some six centuries later, after Josiah dies, there's a descendant of his who comes along who's much, much, much better than Josiah. It's Jesus. His obedience is perfect. He humbled himself even to the point of death, death on the cross. Um, he would pray in the garden, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He obeyed out of love for the Father, even when it wasn't going to do anything to ease his suffering, but in fact, it was going to intensify it on the cross. Josiah is a wonderful example. His, again, his humility, his obedience, but Jesus is the ultimate hero that the story points to. He's the king that we need to turn to in order to see the wrath of God turned away from us. He's the king who can forgive the worst of sinners, even those who live like Manasseh. If they will humble themselves, repent and trust in in him. I just say to you, will you humble yourself today? Trust in Christ. If you do, God's grace will be yours in abundance. Grace to wash away your sin, wash away your record of wrongdoing. To set you in right standing before the Lord. Not because you're able to clean your act up. But because of Christ's righteousness that is yours by faith. That can be yours today. And this is the other side of that coin. If you refuse that grace. and If you refuse that offer. The judgment that you will experience will be far worse than exile in Babylon. It's eternal Wrath that awaits those who refuse Christ in this life. And so you can be hidden in Christ. You can be protected from the wrath of God. Secured forever. If you will trust him. Let's pray. Father I pray that. um, If there's one without Christ today. That they would humble themselves before you. Confess that they are a sinner in need of your grace and that there's nothing they can do on their own to merit the salvation that you offer freely to us, God. But they'll receive this gift of salvation by faith in your Son. And if they're unsure even of what I just prayed and what in the world I'm talking about, I pray that they would find me, find somebody that's sitting around them and ask them. And they might come to know Jesus Christ today. Be born again to this living hope in Jesus Christ. Be freed and forgiven from their sin. And Father, I pray for all of us, God, that we would humble ourselves in your sight. That we would live there, Lord. Not in an event, not in one vow or commitment, but that would be the posture of our heart to walk humbly before you with contrite hearts, tender hearts before you and your word. Father, help us not to be content with the spiritual status quo of our lives, with the apathy that resides in our hearts towards you and in this church. When we see it, may we we just beg you, God, to change us and grow us. May May you give us the kind of instincts that Josiah has to just do the next thing in obedience to you, Lord. May we be 
fully engaged in making disciples this week where you've placed us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.